All right, guys. Uh, welcome back to another podcast of the Magnus and Marcus Show. I'm very excited and pleased to have our first guest ever on this show. So we're bringing with uh, with us, um, in addition to me and John, Vern Gambetta. Vern is, uh, you guys probably know who he is, but I consider one of my coaching mentors and one of the guys who's kind of uh, given me direction and how to navigate this, uh, this crazy world that we call coaching. So uh, welcome to the show, Vern. Thanks, Steve, and, and John, it's great to be here, and, and, and as I kind of said on a couple of emails to you, I, you guys, I have so thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. I, I don't normally, uh, not normally able to sit in front of a computer, and uh, which I guess obviously I could put it on my iPad or something, but that shows where I am, you know, and listen to something, but I have thoroughly enjoyed your discussions, and uh, it just reminds me of some of the discussions that Gary Winkler and I had, you know, 35, 40 years ago trying to figure this thing out. Not that we have it figured out by any means. So it's cool to just, I, I'm honored to be on. Thanks, guys. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, thanks a yeah. lot. So, um, in talking with John, uh, what we try and do is, is take things a little bit differently than normal. So I wanted to, or we wanted to start out by almost posing the question of, of what do you think the qualities are? What do you think makes a great coach? What is what does one need? Well, um, I mean, it, it, you know, if you'd ask, it, I, 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 I've kind of been thinking about this because of something else, and you know, I, I look at my career in ten-year increments, and you know, probably when I started out in 1969, my my answers are really significant different than it is now. I thought then it was just all about technical expertise and knowing, you know, every intricacy of training and, and all, you know, all the ins and outs. And, and the longer I coach and the more I observe coaching, and now I'm at the point in my career where it's probably a little bit more toward mentor coaching, I, I think it's, it's um, communication skills. Um, you know, I think knowledge is a given, but, and, and just, a, just a basic sensitivity to people. Uh, you know, having had the opportunity to, to, to go outside of athletics and, and work with other sports, all the really great coaches that I've been around just had a, had a way of being able to communicate with their athletes, observe their athletes, really have a deep understanding of what their athletes were. You know, and some of them never spent any time around their athletes except the training sessions, but still had that ability, you know. So, and then, and then I also think that you know, from a from a, a, a technical perspective, the great ones keep learning. Um, I'm in the process of writing a, I guess, a blog or something. I was thinking about this after a sermon at Mass on Easter Sunday got me thinking that, you know, great, all the great coaches I've been around, and you know, starting with Bowerman and and you know, on through uh, Bill Sweet and him and swimming and things like that, uh, all of them never had all the answers, but they had really, really great pointed questions, you know, about what, you know, and, and, and so that's, I think that's, there's no, there's no point in belaboring the point. I mean, I think those are, those are real essential elements, you know, so what do you guys think? What have you guys seen? Well, I guess I'll jump in since I've been uncharacteristically mute. Um, <laughs> so first, Vern, 
really thankful uh, that you're here. I was telling Steve, you know you're big time on podcast role when you start having guests or you just <laughs> ran out of material. So maybe one, a little bit of column A, a little column B, but, <laughs> um, you know, it warms my heart to hear you kind of describe the similar process Steve and I personally have gone through in the last 10, 15 years with our personal evolution of coaching. Um, but, I mean, what really stuck out to me and was really near and dear to my heart is exactly that, the sensitivity of the people you're working with. And, we, you know, we talk a lot about um, the athlete, the other 20, 21 hours of the day and how that impacts them. And that's, that's kind of where coaching from a technical perspective is bridged to that just overall life mentorship or either appreciation and fellowship that you develop as a coach athlete in the really healthy situations. And I think that's what we're all trying to create a bridge towards is that situation where, you know, the athlete and the coach just have a, a fundamental understanding about how each other operates and what their worldview is, and then just being able to help challenge but also enhance their worldview through, you know, different obstacles that they may face, whether it's personal relationship obstacles for the athlete, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, training and technique-oriented um, drills to enhance the athlete, whether it's, oh, you know, work schedules that don't allow the athlete to train, you know, perfectly through whatever kind of training paradigm is in vogue at that moment. You know, and that, that to me is what I've seen. I always, I, I tell uh, younger coaches in their early 20s are getting into it, I go, you're going to spend the first, you know, five to eight years amassing um, physiology and just basic, you know, X's and O's type stuff. But that ultimately, as you get older in the profession, is going to account for about what you use only 5% of the time. You know, wearing the workouts is the easiest thing to do. It's so easy now in terms of where you have to really be critically critical in your thought process. More what I've found myself doing is I'm writing or rewriting training based on the emotional uh, climate of the athlete on that day for that session. And it, it doesn't operate kind of in the silo that, all right, you take off your work clothes or your school clothes or your, you know, just you everyday clothes and you put on these athletic clothes and you, you there's this critical shift that happens and you're like, you know, Superman or Wonder Woman ripping off your, your car clamp vest or what have you. Yeah. It's like, no, it, it's a continuum. And I think the once that crystallized, uh, the the human being as a continuum, whether they're in the office, at home, um, you know, in the uh, recovery uh, process or on the training ground, uh, made, made a critical shift. And so I really try to encapsulate that knowledge as quickly as I can and impart that. Because once I figure that out, the performance of the people I worked with skyrocketed sure. unbelievably. Well, and it was just great to see. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's really funny as I was listening to you talk. And Steve, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Uh, a big factor, in, uh, ironically, in sort of my growth as a coach was when I started coaching my own daughter uh, in track when she was in ninth grade. You know, and and I wasn't coaching elite athletes anymore. Now, I, I started out, recognize that people don't know that, as a junior high and a high school coach, but it had been a while since I'd been around you know, a kid that had never run or jumped or thrown before, you know, and so obviously I'd give her rides home and, and we'd talk about, talk about practice, not about her, but about practice and pretty sharp young lady. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it really opened my eyes listening to her about what the messages that she heard that day in practice. I wasn't her dad then. 
you know, and it, it, it just reinforced that and made me kind of even look back and say, okay, now why, when you saw various coaches like uh, Steve, uh, there was just a kind of a funny story after you put that picture up of Telez and Harry. I don't know if you know this. Harry and I used to train together, and he's my daughter's godfather and that. But I, I was standing next to Tom at the Mount Sac Relays, 1982, I think. And a triple jump, one of his triple jumpers came up. It was Friday night. And said, Coach, he was from uh, Pomona, you know, right over the hill. And he said, Coach, do you think it'd be okay if I if I go home, and uh, you know, instead of stay in the team hotel, and there's a, a you know, and I just listened to Tom's answer. And, you know, he could be, as you know, he could be pretty gruff in that. And it was he clearly, clearly knew that that's what this kid needed. You know, he needed some home. He needed to go back to mom and dad. You know, and that kind of stuff, and it's it's little things like that that just keep reinforcing that. You know, so it's big time important. Yeah, good. Yeah, definitely. No, <laughs> it's uh, it's cool listening to you guys talk about this thing because we're on the same page uh, completely. And one of the things I liked hearing about both you guys' answer is it's it's this process that that almost every coach goes through. It's from this idea that you have this that technical expertise is it's what matters the most. And, and then you go through this process of understanding it all. And then it, it becomes like this eye opening moment where it's like, okay, this technical stuff, this physiological stuff is great, but in the end it serves the basis for all this other emotional, <laughs> psychological stuff that matters way more. Right. Uh, and it, it's almost like this aha moment. I mean, yeah. um, and I think that's a great lesson because I mean I I went through that process for a couple of years where I was like okay this all this you know physiology and technical stuff like yeah. this this is gonna be it right and then you hit this moment where it's like okay well this is great to know like I I need this background but man this other stuff is where I re the rubber hits the road um, I went I, I wanted to ask you a little bit, Vern, about one thing you mentioned briefly and that me and John have talked about a little before is that you mentioned you you started out as like a high school and junior high coach. And I think I think that's something you don't see as much anymore and especially in the college ranks. People tend to go straight to college, but uh I know both both me and John have had experience at that level and I remember, you know, uh talking about uh Tom Telez's coming yeah. up through that that same level and it's almost like this idea that you when you you coach at that level you're you're forced to develop number 1 but you're also forced to learn how to coach almost everything right <laughs> um, which right. which gives yeah. you this huge general base so i wanted to see if yeah. you could talk about that importance and how that how well, just put a, put a timer on me because <laughs> i mean that's uh, if if i and I sincerely mean this, if I had it to do over again, I would have never left Santa Barbara High School. People say, really? You know, you because I never set out to, to, to be on a podcast, never set out to do some of the things that, you know, and that. Um, and But I had this idea that I wanted to get to the big time and have stars in my eyes. So put that aside. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I think it was 
last week or two weeks ago you guys were saying I was just sitting here just with a smile from ear to ear because I didn't realize I knew Steve you had coached in high school but John I didn't know you I didn't know that much about your background when you said you have to coach everything guys I have to lay out a track (laughs) and and, and our track at Lacumber Junior High School was on two levels okay when the kids got on a level track they just thought this is really cool you know and a 440-yard grass track, and then on an upper field, a 300-yard, 300 330-yard uh, six-lane grass track with a straightaway, you know. Oh, there's no, there was, there's no, you know, um, I, I took track and field officiating from Dutch Warmerdam. And a lot of people don't know who Dutch Warmerdam is, but first man to vault 15 feet, probably one of the greatest athletes, track and field athletes ever. And the stuff that we have to do, a lot of young coaches today don't have to do it. You know, I, I wonder if a lot of coaches even know how to dig up and rake a pit. And I don't want to sound like, you know, like an old man or something like that, but gosh, the appreciation that that and working with those kids and having to teach, not taking anything for granted, you know, I think was so important in guiding them as to, I mean, I, I, uh, Onosuka Tigers, I got to deal with a friend of ours in Santa Barbara that to get the kids appropriate running shoes. Remember, this is 1969 now. This is not, you know, you couldn't go down to Big Five or something like that and just mm-hmm. pick out running shoes. But that was important and it gave the kids a special feeling, it gave them an edge, you know, and I also taught both in the classroom and physical education, and as I look back, um, the, my room was open every day at noontime, and the kids came in, we, <laughs> they were super, regular eight, super eight wasn't in yet, no video, we'd look at film, they'd just eat their lunch and talk about training. You know, and it was it was a really special time. And I just I really hope and I see a lot of coaches that, like you said, Steve, that go right from their career to coaching in college or going from a GA to a college coaching, particularly a D1 situation that miss the opportunity to to, to, to coach other events. I, I say, I mean, you know, Nick Garcia, one of our game faculty members, Nick is a great coach, but I keep saying to him, Nick, you got one of the best sprint coaches in the country as your head coach. You need to hang out with Coach McNabb on sprint workouts at least one day a week so you'll be a better throws coach, you know, and uh, it's things like that, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, it sounds very, oh, yeah, sorry, I mean, to cut you off, but it sounds like you're, what you're describing is... <laughs> is craftsmanship like you know being a craftsman and knowing the whole art and tapestry from the moment of conception to the moment of like high performance podium level act you know attainment and i think you know just hearing you talk that's what just jotted into my mind was a craftsman you know as a blacksmith that's a great way to put it no i like that yeah 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 well you know that's what it is you know the other advantage and, and, and you guys, and, and you guys, your generation and the generation a little older than you and, and certainly the current generation entering coaches has a terrific advantage with all the information, the instant information you have available. Um, what appealed to me when I first ran across Steve and that was he obviously had picked up a pretty good filter right away uh, in terms of just seeing his website and seeing what was on there. I'm going, wow, this is really interesting. But, you know, the cool part, 
starting when I started is I, it was incredibly naive, naivete. I, I mean, I'm two weeks into my coaching career, guys. I'm coaching seventh, eighth, and ninth graders, and we're talking about a national championship. I just figured that's what happened, you know. I'm going better. You know, and I found out who the best cross country team in the in the United States was. It was York High School. Found out a year later that Joe Newton had a book called The Long Green Line. I got it, read it, gave it to the kids. I said, "We're going to beat them." And and two year and, and and the next year we won the national postal championship and beat the York ninth graders. You know, and if it would have been today, I'm afraid I would have gone on the internet and gone. Wow, they're running nine thirty something. You know, that's my kids right now are only running, you know, ten something. You know, but being kind of naive is really kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, just 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 don't put any. There's no. It was kind of like no limits, right? Yeah. You know, and, and don't we want to instill that in our athletes? You know, I, and, um, but today the kids. I mean, I, I'm doing a lot of work with swimming, right? Now, and team that I work with here in Soda, just Sarasota, just won the national championship. We had a team meeting yesterday, and they were talking about going ahead to junior national. I guarantee you, every kid in there knows the top ten times and knows when they go to a meet exactly where they should slot. You know what I'm saying? Instead of going out and just saying, "I'm going to race," you exactly. know? Right? Yeah. No, there's there's a lot of value to that. I remember, and I, I you know spoke about this young man on a previous podcast, Taylor Brown, who I recruited out of, of Cafe Young here. Um, on campus, his first indoor 3K, he just said that I'm going to go out and race. I like to win, so I'm just going to go race. And he <laughs> he ran the race, he won the race, he set the school record all in his first 3,000 meter on the track wow, of his whole bike. That's awesome. That's and awesome. yeah, that yeah. that kind of innocent innocence to some degree yeah. Yeah. is so valuable because in this information overload society, everyone's double guessing, second get you know triple guessing, just sure. quadruple guessing. Don't, doesn't think they can do it. Oh, well, this person ran this one mark at this perfect time trial race here on the West Coast. And so that's the automatic given. They're going to just win every race moving exactly. forward. And what it does, and I have to remind my athletes of this when they start to talk in that tone, it devalues the purpose of competition. Precisely. And the purpose of competition is to see who is the best on that day, given the situation and circumstances of the conditions that are beyond our control, but also to the conditions of the race and how the race plays out. And that is near and dear to my heart is not degrading the value of competition, which we seem to do. I mean, we could just email PRs in and just right. do it. Make you know, a postal meet, right? Yeah, make it a postal competition and then be done with it and save everyone all the travel and time to fly around, bus around, and this and that. But then what's the fun of that? <laughs> It, it, that, that that's that's really true and 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 it makes the, the fun part of coaching you know I, the fun part is you know the technical part technical refinements or teaching kids distribution of effort if they're a runner or something like that but but you know it is it's teaching them how to compete you know and uh steve knows i through patrick McHugh, I have a relationship with patrick um uh i mean um Peter Callahan, who's now at New Mexico, and 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 I remember when Pat, when I became aware of him, when Patrick, when he was in high school, I said, they don't have a track. Peter can run. He was running 18 miles a week at the time. Um, I said, Patrick, just start out, make his theme, uh, run to win. And you know what? I saw an interview with him on one of those websites or whatever. Uh, I don't know. You guys know those. Whatever it was the other day, and he said. 
I'm not worried about time. I'm just going to run to win. And, you know, and this is five years later, you know, and, uh, you know, I, 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 if, if you can instill that, that's, that's a, that's a real, uh, uh, bonus for that, for that young man or young lady, you know, I think so. Well, Vern, let me ask you this question. I'm just curious because I think about this a lot. Uh, you know, Steve and I, we've been exposed to the sport at a whole variety of different levels. And yeah. I always tell athletes, I look, I can always look through different lenses. I can look through world-class lens, national-class lens, collegiate right. class lens, conference-class lens, lens for you, high school lens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, we're talking about capturing the hearts and minds of athletes. You know, when do you feel like, since you've coached a wide spectrum of ages, that's the ripest from your experience? And when is it the most difficult to make that, you know, uh, climate um, a possibility for that, yeah. that athlete to make that mental shift? Because, yeah. I mean, I have my opinions from my experiences, but I definitely want to hear from, um, from you with your wealth of experience. I think young, uh, I, I, I really do. And, you know, in that's where you take a multilateral approach. We're, we're going to talk athletics track and field here. You take a multilateral approach and uh, you don't lock them into a, an event if they're a runner, a distance. Um, you know, so you expose them to, you know, uh, running a 400 if you're a 1500 meter runner and there's no jeopardy to just go out like a banshee and die at 350, you know. <laughs> And uh, and you kind of learn what you what that's going to feel like in a, in a non jeopardy situation. So I think relatively young. I think the toughest part, and I don't think this is particularly profound, is when you start to accumulate a certain amount of experience and you sort of reach that. I, I, I don't like the term plateau, but I guess it is a plateau or a sticking point, so to speak. And everybody but you realizes that. Um, something has got to be done differently, and how are you as a coach going to convey to the athlete that you, to, to, in order to get better, you know, you, we, we've got to make some changes and some profound changes. could be lifestyle. It could be training, you know, things like that, you know. So I don't know if that completely answers the question, but um, the, the longer they go, the harder it is, and, you know, the more comfortable they get with with certain things and the harder it is and I, I I've said a lot on the blog and that and this is something I think I've learned being around uh, the coaches I've been around the swim coaches I've been around if you're not um, uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable all the time you're never going to achieve uh, the pinnacle at your particular level right I'm not talking about a gold medal now in the Olympic Games you could be at Sarasota Middle School, but it's 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 those kids that learn how to to, to be uncomfortable uh, with pushing themselves or doing certain things and things like that. You know. So on, on that point, I'm very curious because you've had a lot of experiences. Do you think that in today's society, with it being more about, it's almost all about being as comfortable as possible in every single situation ever, right? So from, from, from school to athletics to life, everything's about maximizing this comfort. Right. Um, do you think it's tougher now to instill that or create that ability to, uh, to, be, in a, to be okay in an uncomfortable environment situation? Yeah, no question, Steve. I mean, you know, did, did you guys see McFarland? 
Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In, in a little way, even though Santa Barbara, California, is definitely not McFarland, having gone to school at Fresno State and got lived, you know, in the Valley for four years, but the majority of the kids that I had at La Cumbre Junior High School and at Santa Barbara High School, we had a real interesting dichotomy. They were really, really poor. Uh, some of them Mexican American, and or or uh, there was like a, a mirror of today's society, right? Or they were fairly well off and at Santa Barbara High School, but. The common characteristic is they were tough as nails. They, they don't work out with, with scare them. Um, and I think a lot of it just came from the way society was. Some of it, the, the kids that were more well-off, their grandparents and even their parents might not have been. So they didn't give them as much. Um, and certainly, like, I can remember my number two and number three runners they had a paper route in the morning, and they had a paper route after school. And I better have the workout done at 4 o'clock, because if they were, weren't home in time for their paper route, you know, they had the devil to pay. So it's a lot tougher today, Steve, because uh, uh, I, I just ran into this the last two days. Uh, the, the, uh, the parents used to be interested. Now they're totally involved. Mm. And, uh, you know, they look at Johnny and Susie and they see him grimace and they, they're, they're calling up the doctor, you know. And uh, uh, so it's, yeah, it, it, it is, but they're still out there. And I think once you peel away some of this other stuff, the kids still respond the same, you know. Uh, you know, when you, you, but it's creating a culture. And, and that's, I think that's the other part of coaching that, um, you know, that's what I took from watching McFarland. You know, and uh, uh, I mean, he created a culture, a subculture there within another culture, you know, that was a subculture of the U.S. culture, you know, and, uh, you know, so uh, I, does that make sense, Steve? Or oh, yeah. It? No, totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. No, it's good to hear you say that, Vern. I've always said, you know, coaching is one thing and one thing only, creating an environment so the athlete has an opportunity to be successful. Yeah. And really, once you do that, it all just kind of falls into place. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's the, 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 when I coached, I, I, I coached at Cal Berkeley for five years. And, and guys, that is a tough, tough place to coach. It was a tough place to coach then because the women's athletics was, was the bastard stepchildren. And, you know, it was, it was craziness. But uh, I, I, after my, my uh, second cross-country season, we went into uh, nationals ranked number one. And because they had such a great coach... We ended up seventh. Now, if they would have had the meet on Monday, we would have won. But unfortunately, the meet was on Saturday. But that's a whole other story for another time. And I, I, was, I got kind of – and then in track, we ran fast, but we didn't, we didn't run up to our potential. So I went to North Thornton, the swim coach, and they just won the national championships. And I walk into his office, and above his door, before I, I ever met him, it says, our goal is to create an atmosphere where championships are in, inevitable. And I thought, shoot, I should just walk out. Yeah, <laughs> he just told me what you need to do. I got to work harder to create an atmosphere of athletic excellence in this great atmosphere of academic competition, and make it okay to be good. You know, uh, to be really good. <laughs> you know, and but he gave me a lot of insights into what they have to do and how to do it and how to create a culture. You know, and but that's a big part of of coaching that I, I don't think we give enough credit to. You know, and I mean, I, I, I look at some of the stuff, um, Steve, that you put on, you know, about your team and, and like today's workout. I mean, I, I don't think U of H, I followed it for a long time. Well, they did, 
back, you know, with what's his name? Um, I met him over in Australia, you know, the NC2A champion. There was some some isolated pretty good distance runners in the 50s and 60s there. But there's never been what you're trying to get going there, you know. And uh, you can see it start to start to go, start to take off, you know, just, just by the comments that you're making and some of the other comments back and forth. And that's, that makes a difference. But, boy, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an investment of time, man. And it's it's takes it's not going to happen in two seasons, you know. Exactly. And then, how ahead, like um, talking about you know in the academic setting where you have like scholastic teams where the binding agent is you're at that high school, middle school, university, etc. You know, what are some strategies or ways you found creating that atmosphere? You know, outside in like the club or one-on-one kind of like post-collegiate type coaching settings. I mean, because that's a really tough transition. I know for a lot of post-collegiate athletes I work with, they come from a great culture, a great team environment in college, and then maybe they get picked up by a sponsor or they have to hodgepodge um, different revenue streams. Now, now, how do they do it on their own, or what what do they need to put in place to make to continue that culture success? I, I, like I said, I have more questions on this one. I have more questions than answered. I was talking to Peter Callahan the other day um, about this because the NC2A brought uh, had a symposium at the indoor meet. I don't know if you guys knew that for the for the senior runners that and and he he didn't run indoors, but they paid his way there, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And to, to kind of and they had. Uh, different people talk to them and, and uh, an agent and that talk to them about making tr- that transition. That's a huge, huge jump. I, I listened to you guys talk about it a couple of weeks ago and just having worked in that environment in that unusual situation up there, which is not to be mentioned and, and seeing that, seeing that in some other situations, man, it's, you know, it's a whole different mentality, isn't it? Now you, you got to race, you know your your livelihood depends on it, and and your whole your whole psyche has to change. Every race gets blown out of proportion. Every workout gets blown out of proportion. You know, so you you got to have a, uh, you know, you, I I think I used to joke. You know, I used to think uh, before the wall came down. You know, all the Eastern European athletes they they compete till they were thirty one or thirty two, and they'd say they were in school and working on a master's degree. And I used to think. God, they must be really stupid, you know. <laughs> and and uh, I thought, and afterwards, and I actually met Igor Teravanasian on my 40th birthday in France, and, I, and he spoke really good English. And I asked him, and he goes, "No, we must." He said, "You must have balance in your life, you know." So you, mm-hmm. your kid graduates from, you know, Portland State or from U of H, and he's good. And now he's going to go into X Y Z shoe company team or whatever it is. And he doesn't know the guys, and all those guys are racing for his meal money, you know, now, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, it's a different system. I, I don't know, guys. It's, it's, it's a tough one, but this is reality if for, you have good kids, you know, to want to go on. And I think it's something that maybe you might want to talk to other people on the podcast about, too, because I have more questions than answers. And, and uh, you know, there just isn't very many people that can just run. I, I saw this in professional sport, you know, in baseball and basketball. I've seen it in rugby and soccer. If the guys didn't have something else, you know, to balance their life out, someone would just fry. You could just see them fry right in front of you, yeah, you know, right. mentally, you know, and it's not pretty to watch, you know. So, yeah. 
Well, you look at it too, and I mean, I, Steve and I, we both work with a handful of post pages. It's not really, we don't have a team, so to speak. Right. But, I mean, Steve, you got Tommy and Sarah, and they kind of have their own situation going and their own intrinsic motivation. And you see Tommy really thriving, and I'm working with, you know, like Julia Webb, for example. Yeah. She's pregnant right now, but. You know, in the steeplechase, before she got pregnant again the second go-around, you know, she started to thrive and have something going even more so after she had her first child. Like, it's like she had her child, and, um, and that was the something else that allowed her to be a little bit more on top of everything right. uh, when it came to her training. And then she ran big PRs after that child and really was really competitive, really enjoyed the process. And, yeah. I, you know, I always... I talk to a lot of young men and women in the college ranks about, you know, the next steps if they want to continue their professional running and uh, career. And everyone's so goo and gaga over getting signed by the big shoe company and going to the group. And I explained to them exactly the pitfalls and questions you brought up, Vern, was that the grass isn't always greener. And sometimes you get in that situation where it's, you, you know, if you're a low person on the totem pole out of eight people and you're not running the world class or national class time, the coach isn't going to pay attention to you, nor is your sponsor, because it's the Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately mentality versus okay. some athletes like I'm working with now trying to develop them for the Olympic trials and be competitive at the Olympic trials next year on the track. It's like, hey, we need to be even more process-oriented. It's like this re-engagement and reinvestment in the process. You're here. We need to be here in you know, 18 months or 12 months' time, whatever it is. Yeah. So this is the process we have to be okay with, with the obstacles and pitfalls that accompany that. But, I mean, the ones who are successful are able to re-engage in that process rather than worrying about are they running fast enough marks to appease their sponsors so they don't get reductions? Or are they running you know, enough races to, you know, not get a reduction or are they going to be able to get the bonus or something? So it, it becomes, I mean, a lot of young men and women don't know this. It becomes so much more of a distraction rather than an enhancement because everyone thinks, oh, right. they'll take care of me and all I got to do is run and train every day. Oh, life's easy. But, you know, nine times out of ten, life is like extraordinarily more stressful than it was in the scholastic setting. <laughs> yeah. But I like what you said. It, it again, and at, at every level, it's just completely investing in the process. If we, you know, with our young kids, if we can, that's what I talked to the team about yesterday. Okay, we got we to gotta refocus and rededicate on the process now because now there's another, you know, and, and uh, I mean, that sounds trite, but that's what that's our job as coaches, isn't it? And it we, is. can, we can do that day to day, can't we? It so, is. You know, it, it's funny, like listening to you guys talk about this, like, seen it so many times where it's that balance and that shift to process orientated that that makes such a big difference. I mean, I was talking to one of my friends, Phoebe Wright, yesterday actually about how much more balances in her life and how much more she's enjoying the process of training because she went back to grad school. Yeah. Right? And it yeah. adds that component. And there's actually, it's funny, it's kind of timely. I'm working on a piece with another friend, Brad Stolberg, um, that'll be out in a couple of weeks that looks at some research that's actually from more of the business standpoint, but it, it's cool research because they found that those who had some overarching like purpose, overarching purpose and some and a higher degree of balance in their life um, were higher performers in, in the business world, however that is defined. And, right, and, right. and, and they're kind of, you know, their kind of uh, theory on why it was is like it, it allowed them to take a step back, 
take their ego away from their business and saying, this is what defines me. So my ego is attached to it. And when your ego isn't attached exactly to what you do, you can, you, you can step back and take more acceptable risks, right? Yeah. Well, if your ego is all tied up into how fast I run a mile in, then everything is life or death. It's like, oh, I get in this race and this is going to define me as a human being. Right. And I think that's where people, when they go from college to professional or college to the big shoe company, they just get, you know, screwed over. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, It's it's, it's how you define yourself, too. And I'm big on defining yourself. I know the times that I've had a rocky time as a person and as a coach is when I've let other people or situations define me. And uh, I, I kind of, it kind of cracks me up sometimes because I look at people's um, URLs or web address, you know, their email addresses, and mm. it might say um, Mile or Bob or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, uh, and I, there's a coach not to be mentioned that has his athletes uh, performance as his website. And I'm thinking you're letting this define your life 30 years later, you know, uh, now that's a value judgment maybe on my part, but to me, that's a big part of the process too is, is, and, and that's what you got. You guys said this on your last podcast. And you alluded to it earlier, this 24 hour athlete concept, you know, um, uh, I mean, you're an athlete for two hours, you know, and what you do the other 22 define you, not the two hours, even if you are a pro athlete. You know? so, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's hard it's, to get young people to, 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 to understand that. You know, it's clear to me now, you guys, at age 68, clear as a bell, you know, but, you know, it's, it's tough to get an 18 year old to understand that, you know. So. Well, it's, yeah. it's okay to fail, and I mean, as long as, and I remind people, it's okay to fail as long as you took a risk. If you sure. took a risk and you failed, you get a bunch of information, a bunch of feedback that's going to enhance your process and what you do moving forward. But if you fail by not taking a risk at all and not engaging and just being yep. passive, well, then nothing was learned. Nothing lost, nothing learned. And then it's like, so what? Why are we out here doing a race? We might as well just have a training session where we can control all the constraints. And, you know, it's exactly, you know, right, Steve, like you said, like having your ego not completely wrapped up in, in it. It's this fine balance, right? It's like optimum arousal. You don't want to be too aroused and too jacked up and, you know, too hyped, but you don't want to be just unaroused, period. You want to be in that zone, and the zone's different for every person. My wife's a, a great example. She's a national class distance runner, has ran U.S. championship road races and gone to U.S. nationals multiple times indoor and outdoor on the track, and when she starts to get really, like, early on in her career, when she was making this ascension in the national class, because uh, she never was, you know, even regional class as a athlete in the university mm-hmm. she would get really really nervous and i had to remind her i say kristen you're the only full-time physical therapist on the starting line right now <laughs> you you work 40 hours a week four 10-hour shifts and your yeah. days off you yeah. do killer workouts to get yeah. yourself here like if yeah. you don't run fast it's really not a big deal <laughs> and that was always that's always a, a point of calm calling for her is yeah. to real make that realization yeah. because yeah if if you don't run fast and then you go to the party or you go to your social outlets and everyone's judging you because you won't have a 157 PR as 800 meter gal and you're at 205, well then, you know, your world's come to an end for the next 
week or two weeks until your next race type deal. And it's just a real unhealthy balance. Yeah, oh, I got it. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We haven't talked at all about training, guys. Yes, <laughs> what? <laughs> maybe, maybe that maybe that says something too. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> oh man, uh, that's true. polarization of training, Steve. What's that? I, I sent you that. Um, oh yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve inside. I know. I, I can't imagine if you didn't find time to do it. I, I, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like you to write out your day for me, your diary, like minute by minute. I, it might look like mine did when I was your age, but but I, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it. And uh, I've actually I, seen that video before, about a year or a year. Steve Silers from his talk at Incep in in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it was it was great because it explained exactly the methodology I use for training, and it just. It would, what I always explain to people, it makes sense because everything is on a rhythm. Like the heartbeat, the sun, you know, ingesting food, excreting food, you know, waste matter. I mean, it all makes sense just from an environmental standpoint it, versus this go hard all the time mentality that some people have. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's, real, it's interesting because who sent it to me was one of the swim coaches that I work with. And, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 my question. I think my question to you, Steve, was: Does the polarization aspect really apply when you're looking at eight fifteen? I get it. At you know, at five and ten and marathon, yeah. and even to a certain extent, not even the steeple as much. You know, because of the different demands. And you know, I've been really thinking about it. And I've gone back and read Siler's research gone back and looked at some other stuff, talked to a whole bunch of coaches since I sent you that email, and nobody, you know, in, 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 in swimming, typically they do a lot of work at threshold. Yes. You know, now there's, you could say there's a lot of reasons for that, but in talking to some of the coaches that have been around a little longer, they go, you know, the, 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 the they're really questioning that, you know, and I, I'm just wondering you know, my, my, there's, there's a couple of things. I think the women's 800 internationally is way under where, way off where it should be. We're, we're not even close. Yeah. Uh, and, and throw out the drug influence marks. We're not even close to where they should be. I, I don't think, um, the men's 800 is either, uh, where it should be. I, 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 I think the women's 800 there's a whole bunch of women, like in this country, running 411, 415, 416. But what about four? You know, what about four flat and that? And is that polarization training aspect? Is that part of it? And my other question is: See, I'm looking at polarization of training, not just of the running component, but I'm looking at the strength training component. How I can make that match up? And, and I'm looking at the program that I'm working with, this, that particular runner. Are we doing too much stuff in that middle range and not enough at either end? You know, so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Talk, but. Um, so I, I've, I've read Steven Seiler's work for a couple of years and actually talked to him about it a little bit. Um, he's a Texan too. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, he's a Texan. I know. I found that out once we became Facebook friends. I was like, oh, okay, Texan. There we go. He's a classmate of Jimmy Radcliffe's wife at UT. Oh, by the way. cool, cool. Which wow. got her PhD. So that's, that's how I knew he was a Texan before I thought. So go ahead. <laughs> um, 
you know, and early on, I liked I liked his work because it 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 didn't fall along the lines of um, it took into practical consideration of what athletes actually did a little bit. So I think he wrote a piece, God, probably four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, that said, this is what athletes do. This is what physiologists say they should do when they don't. So mm-hmm. let's listen to the athletes and see why they're doing what they do. And then yeah. I think this polarization thing grew out of it um, to a degree. So it's I, retrospective more than prospective. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I think one of the things we have to be careful about is, is when you look at these models that kind of classify things um, on polarization is, yeah. is where do we split it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, some of these are like zone one, zone two, zone three, or, yeah. you know, aerobic threshold, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes you, you miss the mark a little bit because you create these arbitrary ba- boundaries okay. that, that make it seem like there's more of a polarized approach than there actually is. I see. Um, I see. If that makes sense. No, I, I hear. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because particularly, don't you think particularly again when I, I mean, you know, my interest is more eight fifteen yeah. or fifteen eight. But what is what is sort of uh, that middle zone really changes, doesn't it? Yes. Relative to those events, yes. and what's upper, and then what's lower changes it. Because I talked to Gary Winkler the other day about it in regard to you know sprints and that, and there's no question that his training over the years was polarized. Yeah, you know, and and as as he got better and better as a coach, as a sprint and hurdle coach, it was more polarized. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I you know interesting. I, I almost look at I hate to get out out of training, but when I read anti fragile and saw yep. the the extreme thing, that's what I thought about in training. I'm like, oh, like this matches up pretty good to a polarized approach, right? Yeah. Um, and when you start seeing similar things in similar areas, it's like, oh, maybe this makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, if you looked at our training to a degree, I think it's very polarized. I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head that that where that middle ground is shifts entirely. Moving target, then, you think, based on – and some of, some of it individual too, right, would you yeah. think? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, and I, I think that's where – the reason you probably don't see, especially the women's eight, where it 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 could be, is because the eight hundred is probably the most difficult event to figure out where that middle ground and that balance is mm-hmm. for, for the yeah. for, for males and females or for females. I think I'd it's say for both. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with Steve okay. for both. Okay. I mean, because okay. you have to look at like the difference in kind of the hormonal profile of the right. fe- of females and males. And that right. 800, you know, you're, you're engaging two tricky energy systems that sure. um, require different, you know, uh, fuels or sources to to be efficient. And so what you're trying to do essentially is you're, you're trying to mix oil and water to a lot of degree and it wants to just be separate no matter what you do. So it, that's it's why it's such a tricky, tricky yeah. balance. Right. Because you, you stir up that, you know, um, that bowl with oil and water and it looks like it's all stirred and it's ready to go. But then you let it sit for like 10, 15 minutes and yeah, again, it's separate. separate. Yeah. And especially with the women, what I've noticed, I mean, because, you know, for me, I'm a big fan with women is really emphasizing mm-hmm. the aerobic component because women have 
just you know higher percentage body fat than men, and that's preferred source of fuel for the aerobic component. And once they can do a steady stream of stout aerobic work, then it, we can maximize the kind of neuromuscular and anaerobic component, which engages like a little bit more testosterone, challenges the ATP right. in all those capacities. Because if we don't do the requisite aerobic work, what happens is we can get a lot of bang for a buck and return a man very, very quickly when doing that type of, you know, uh, more intense, sharper neuromuscular work. Yeah. But then it falls either plateaus or it's a cliff and just goes downhill off. real quick. Yeah. And I, for women... I, um, I think Jan Albrecht says the same thing. I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm going to a clinic he's doing at um, University of Tennessee next week, and I'm really psyched because I want to ask him about oh, this. Oh, very cool. You know, uh, because, no, I... I John, I think I think you're right on there, and I, I guess my other question, and please let's move on from here. But I, 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 isn't there a tendency though when you have like okay, say 800 male or female, probably to go one more harder day, uh, in a seven day microcycle than you do with a 15 or a 5k runner or something like that, when maybe that should be that should be more of a sustained aerobic you know, lower threshold kind of a thing, skilled aerobic type of thing, uh, if, if I'm hearing you right, so that you, so that when you go to the higher end, it's really, really higher end, and it's truly polarized and contrasted. So. I mean, I'll give my opinion, and Steve, I'll let you give yours. Like, yep. for men, yes, you can, because they have more testosterone, more kind of those recovery hormones built into their body, so they can do higher intensity and bounce back quicker. Women... You, you know, you have to be very careful. You can't. And that's where I like to incorporate strength training is to yeah. kind of give the testosterone within women a little bit of a boost. So it's like right. I explain to the athletes, we don't necessarily do weight and strength training to gain muscle mass and get, quote, unquote, stronger. That's a good byproduct of what we're doing. We're actually trying to create a hormonal response in you to help right. expedite the recovery <laughs> process. In the endocrine hormonal environment, really, right. you're doing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that that's, that's my main concern. So I don't really care if you're yeah. – moving up in your bench press five or ten pounds, you know, sure. after six weeks of, you know, consistent lifting. What I care about is that we're, you know, getting this done to help you bounce back for the next session. Yeah. Um, I, but that's just what I've noticed. Steve, yeah. what are your thoughts? I, on the 800, I think, I think it's an interesting dilemma almost, but I think a lot of it comes back to this misunderstanding of what you can do. Um, I think there is this this balance mismatch of aerobic and anaerobic or speed and endurance, but yeah. I, I think sometimes we see it as this dichotomy that you can't improve both, and and I think people almost make this, well, I'm going to take the 800 from an aerobic component. I'm going to take it from like a speed component, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I think that's a mistake, and I, get, I give this example all the time, but I mean... Um, so just this last weekend, uh, we had one of our 800 guys. He's run 149 low. Um, he came out of high school as a 5K runner. Now he's, now he he's ran 47 at, point. Yeah, and he ran 47, awesome. 47.6 by himself. Wow! <laughs> you yeah. know, and he was just like cruising. And this yeah. is right after you know an hour after running a 149.8. And it uh, was our mm-hmm. it was our fourth man in cross country running you know sub yeah. sub twenty five for eight k. Wow! So right. it, it, you know, but the thing is, like last year, he the fastest four hundred he split was probably forty eight four forty eight five. Yeah. So yeah. You, and then he came back and he improved in cross and he improved in 
on you yeah. know, his yeah. speed. And I think that's this misnomer is I think if you balance it correctly, right, yeah. you yeah. can yeah. develop both sides of the coin. And that's yeah. where you get a really, really good 800 runner. Okay. okay. Well, it sounds like he's an athlete. Yeah, no, I remind people all the time you may be a runner, quote unquote, but you, we're really trying to train you to be a really good athlete. Yes. Yes. And I think that, that comes back to this, this point that, you know, Vern, you made at the very beginning. Um, part of that is, is your distance kids should run the 4x4 four four occasionally. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. You know, and, and oh, you, yeah. Should, you should have your 400 runner run the 800 occasionally. Like, you, they're, yeah. they're half the two mile relays and things like that. For exactly. The exactly. Like, you, know, you, you, I, you go back, you know, when I, I had uh, in junior high um, and during the summers uh, when I coached in high school, but in junior high, I taught the track and field class. And all the kids and two of the kids my, of that team that beat York went on to be college steeplechasers. Uh, you know, in high school, one of them was one of them was my second best long jumper. You know, so and during the summer, we'd have a track and field class, and I and I, I made all the distance kids learn all the events. I, I I I let them run. I figured you. I said you guys will run. I gave them a limit. I didn't. You can't. You could only run so much. But they had to come to track. Well, they didn't have to, but they came to track and field class. And they loved it. They loved high jumping. They loved yeah. doing pole vault. They love, you know, and, and that. And then it it, it 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 just builds that that anti fragile athlete again too, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm reading anti fragile again, Steve, for the third time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Any of you that are thinking about reading it, just be prepared to read it three times. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. At least, at least, and you gotta gotta take a, a couple months off from it before you ready to tackle it again. <laughs> Mine is, is littered with notes and, and yeah. me, me trying to figure out what's going on. But, yeah, yeah. no, I'm right there with you guys. So, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, so we're getting near an hour, and I don't want to keep you up all night, Vern. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, Thanks, I guess, Steve. This is well past my bedtime, guys. You it, know it, that, it, so this is pretty special. <laughs> no, it's getting past my bedtime, too. It's uh, yeah. Uh -huh. I, it's actually funny. I had an athlete, uh, one of my post-collegiates, Tommy Schmitz, who's a 356 miler, stay with me last week. He was in town. And he was like, now I understand why I can't call you after 10 o'clock because I'm just yeah. straight into bed. I'm like, I got morning practice, guys. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you do, how you're doing. I mean, you know, it, so uh, it's crazy. Your, your life's got to be crazy. Uh, I mean, I, 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 my wife and I were laughing the other day with the first year we were married. And then I, I know we got to go, but. I um, I get up and do a morning workout um, three days a week. If I didn't, um, I would I would sleep in until seven fifteen, and get to school early. And I had a routine in the in the gymnastics room through the other three days a week. That was about fifteen minutes. Taught a first period PE class. Put my clothes on. Ran a six hundred. Ran six hills. Went back, um, drank a protein shake, showered, and slept for fifteen minutes. And then, and then between classes. Like between one class, I'd, I'd do a weighted ball for the javelin. The next class, I'd throw a weight for the discus. Then before lunch, I'd do maximum pull-ups, you know, and that. And then I coached at my junior high. Then I coached throws at a high school. And then I went out and worked out at UCSB at about 5.15. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I was God, I wasn't very good, but dang, I was fit. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it's funny. You joked earlier, actually, for for grad school. One of my assignments right now this week is actually to track everything I do every day for time okay. management. So um, okay. I'll pass that along to so you can see how chaotic my life okay. is. But um, okay. I, I, I guess to end things. One last question I wanted to end on, and since we were talking about anti-fragile, is beyond that, okay, I know you're an avid reader, John's an avid reader, I am too, and I think that's an important part of of coaching or anything really, is getting all these ideas from all these disparate spots and bringing them back into into your own world, whatever that is, is what are the maybe two or three books that come to your head right now that you'd recommend to a... uh, to a track and field coach, let's say. Oh, okay. Uh, I kind of anticipated you might ask this, but I still struggle with it. I, I still think every track coach ought to read uh, Ken Doherty's uh, track and field alumni book, not the new edition, the eighty, like the eighty-four edition. Okay, if you, you can still get it online. Um, I, I just think that that'll give you uh, it, the technical models in each event have not changed. And uh, he gives you this, this holistic view of life as an athlete, life as a coach. And there's a historical development of each event, which I think is, is, is just so important to know. So that one, um, um, you know, to let it, you know, I, I go back to science to swimming and, and uh, um, uh, mechanics of athletics from Tom. But mechanics of athletics is still worth me. Science swimming is a great book, but we've, we've kind of moved past that a little bit. Um, I think uh, Dynamics of Skill Acquisition, a Constraints-Led Approach by um, Keith Davids is the lead author. I think there's, it's a rich book um, and, you know, just about skill acquisition, and it should make people really think about And it also introduces you to, uh, you know, complexity theory and, you know, and, and, and how, um, how that would work, too. So, uh, um, gosh, there's so many. Um, you know, I, I think as a as another uh, tr- just pure sort of track and field book. I think going back to uh, uh, Schmelinski, the East, not because it's East German, but the systematic way that they develop, you know, each event and the theories of organizing training. Schmelinski's book, Track and Field, which I still think you can get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, it's it's available. I, I still think that I rec- still recommend that. You know, again, it's very fundamental. It's very basic. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's funny cause last year, Harry Mara and I were talking and he recommends track and field on the book too, you know, because for the same reason that it's fundamental and it's basic, you know, and here's arguably one of the greatest multi-event coaches in the world. And it always comes back. That's our point is it always comes back to the fundamentals and the basics, you know? So, um, those, I, I guess those would be, if, if you just have to narrow me down to three without, you know, deeper thought. Um, there's certainly a lot more on, you know, sort of training theory and strength training and things like that. But, you know, I, I, I think you got to get out and try it yourself, you know. Um, is I think that if my recommendation, read about it and then get out and do it, you know. I mean, uh, you know, if you want to be a good coach, learn how to learn the events, practice them yourself, you know, so too. No, that's awesome. Awesome answer. I'm uh, right there with you. I mean, as I think I've told this story a million times now, but when uh, Tom Telez found out that I was uh, want or 
<laughs> pushed me towards coaching, I'll say. Um, yeah. He was like, all right, I'm going to make you learn how to high jump and throw uh-huh. and shot put. And I'm, you know, I remember sitting there as a 140 pound distance runner sitting there at the, the university with a shot put trying to, <laughs> trying to put it out. And people are like, what is this kid doing? But it was just getting the technique and feeling things and understanding yeah. what it feels like. And, you know, I, I've kept that lesson with me is even, even in running is a lot of times, even mm. if I'm out of shape, I'll, I'll jump in and do a, do a similar workout just to remind myself what it feels like to go through right. it. Right. Um, which is, I mean, I went from being a football player, a very poor football player, you know, to doing decathlon. And I'm, I mean, I sound like I, I was only 4,000 points behind the guys I trained with, 5,884 points or, you know, but I got to train with world-class people. But, you know, I, I went out and, and did temple runs and yep. and I did fartlek and I did, you know, to, to see what it was like uh, so I could train those, you know, those distance runners and that, you know, and it... Um, I, I, you know, and it goes back to the last point, uh, promise that we talked about earlier. I have a real problem, even though I'm still doing a little bit with the USA Track and Field Coaching Ed program and the other program. There's no coaching ed program in this country where you have to show proficiency in track and field. Yep. If you're a ski coach, you guys, you're going to get out on that mountain and you're going to have to show proficiency in skiing. But, um, I mean, when I took theory of track and field in 1968 from Red Estes at Fresno State, you don't think I was sweating vaulting? (laughs) You know, as a a 195-pound ex-football player, you know, uh, we have to show proficiency. We have to show a correct plant. We have to not necessarily clear a bar. And you were graded. And if you didn't get a seven or above, you kept, you know, you you could only fail two events. (laughs) Wow. You know, and, and but boy, you know, made you realize the importance of what it was to feel it, um, you know, for for your athletes, you know. So I, I that's if that's the last message I leave people with that I have to say, I if I drop dead right now, I, I think that would be a powerful message. <laughs> Learn it, get out and do it, you know. So I, I and, think I think that's a huge lesson because I think a lot of times, especially with all the research and all the information available so easily readily at our fingertips is it's a lot easier to just read about it and uh think you know what you're doing versus uh getting out there experiencing it doing it learning how to do it um and i'm right there with you with the coach's education thing so uh, (laughs) i'm working to try to change it steve I, I was going to pull completely away from it, but I'm, I'm not going to dive in. I got, as you know, I've got with gain and yeah. so many other things going, but I, I'm going to try to change. The only way you can change it is from within. And mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll do my best. You know, um, they're not, they, 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 every time they see me coming, they run and hide, you know, <laughs> they know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to keep saying it. So what the well, heck? Well, let me know if you need a sidekick, Vern, because I'm of the same philosophy. You got to change yeah. the system from within. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Hey, you guys, thanks again. Gosh, every, every week this podcast gets longer. It's going to be harder for me to listen. To. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, you guys, take care. No, thanks a lot, Vern. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Vern. Bye. Bye. All right. You off? We're good. I could keep talking.